Well, Cedar Street, I love you very, very much, and it's my joy to be with you here this morning, and I don't know if you know this, but you have a reservation in the upper room, and that's where we're going to return together. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, Return to the Upper Room, subtitle being, Leaning in Closely to Hear the Very Heartbeat of Jesus Through His Last Words at His Last Supper. We're looking word by word and verse by verse from John 13 to John 17. Again, the Apostle John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, part of the inner circle, focuses on this section of Scripture, five chapters and 155 verses on one meal to hear the heart of our Lord and Savior. At the beginning, in, uh, two weeks ago in John 13, verse 1, we talked about the covenant love of Christ, that He loves us to the very end. Last week, as we continued in the passage, we, we talked about how Jesus takes our towel. He took a towel that was meant for us to save us and to show us what life in the kingdom of God is all about, that the way up is down, that whoever is great among you must be your servant. Well, today we enter into the darkness of the upper room, and we consider one of the darkest moments that leads to the greatest moment of light. We're going to begin this meal at the table with the bread of betrayal. The bread of betrayal from Judas Iscariot as we look at John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. And you know, as I began to think about uh, the story of Judas and I began to think about um, this monumental moment that takes place in the upper room, I have to stop and think And I want to make this very clear and basic statement. All sin is betrayal of God. All sin. Sin, you know, we define it in different ways. We can say that sin is thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes that disobey God's will and misrepresent His nature. But that's what sin is. Sin is a betrayal of God. It is we as human beings made in the image of God betray God by misrepresenting Him and disobeying the will that He has laid out for our lives. That's what sin is. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about sin. Uh, The entire story of the people of God is a story of sin and grace. But there are two monumental moments of betrayal in the Scriptures. One specifically against God the Father, and this one here today against God the Son. And you know the unique thing about it is both of these moments of betrayal are symbolized by food. Think back to the Old Testament. Uh, the, The origin of sin that takes place in the Garden of Eden is when Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they partook of that fruit as betrayal against God because they did not want to obey God. They wanted to be God. That's the betrayal of the Father. But now we look in the New Testament and we see this, this passage here in John 13, and this is the betrayal of the Son. And as Adam and Eve took fruit they were not supposed to take, we see Judas taking this bread that has been dipped and handed to him, and he partakes of this bread of betrayal and gets ready to hand over Jesus to the chief priest who will put him on the cross. But here's the difference. Here's the reason why Jody has providentially chosen that every song that we've sang about here this morning is about grace. The first betrayal led to our separation. But the second betrayal is actually going to lead to our salvation 
because Jesus works through the second betrayal to bring atonement for the first one. And so I want us to keep all of this in mind as we look through the life of Judas here in John 13, verses 18 through 30. I want us to see the bread of betrayal, but how it also leads to the grace of God in the betrayal of God's Son. And that leads us to our big idea in one sentence. As we sit down together at the table and enter into the upper room through the Last Supper, in one sentence, the first course served at the Last Supper is the bread of betrayal as the servant disowns the master. The first course served at the Last Supper is the bread of betrayal as the servant disowns the master. So if you want to know more about this bread of betrayal and how it leads to the unspeakable grace of God, would you join me by turning to the book of John, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you or beside you. will be on page 1070 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant and fully sufficient word again we are in John chapter 13 we're going to start in verse 18 and work our way down through verse 30 verse 18 starts in the middle of the paragraph but this is where the 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 whole text shifts so it's really important that we start there and we'll take it to the end of uh of verse 30 so here God's word to us starting in John 13 verse 18 I am not speaking of all of you I know whom I have chosen But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we sit down at the table in the seat of John and we acknowledge the first course is served and it's bread of betrayal. It is one who walked with Jesus day in and day out for three years, who heard Jesus over and over say that he was going to be put to death when he went to Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, the bread of betrayal is eaten. And in deception, the servant goes out and disobeys the master. And Lord, as we look through this 
tragic story of Judas. Help us to think of two things. Number one, Lord, help us to remember that we are Judas and we have betrayed you. And yet help us to remember the end of this story, that the greatest betrayal also led to the greatest moment of salvation, that the cross led to the empty tomb. So help us now, Lord, as we sit down for this first course and we watch Judas eat the bread of betrayal, that our sin is great, but your grace is greater. Be with us now, I pray, in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, let's be honest. There are certain names that will live in infamy. And there is no name more so than Judas that takes that title. Anybody in here got a dog or a cat named Judas? Anybody got a child or a grandchild named Judas? It is a name that will live in infamy forever. Even the casual Christian, the non-believer, has all heard the name of Judas Iscariot. So I want to kind of piece together who he is, what he did, and why he did it. And, you know, the Bible doesn't give us in one paragraph a full description of Judas what it does is give us echoes it gives us pieces like a jigsaw puzzle we got to put those pieces together that's the work of theology and so let's put these pieces together and let's figure out who Judas is first of all now again there's no chapter and verse to say exactly what the background of Judas was but scholars have been able to piece things together and most scholars believe and I do too that Judas most likely was from a very radical uh, political group among the Jews known as the Zealots. All right, the Zealots were very radical. They wanted uh, to, to overtake Rome by force. Again, they were a political group that got in a lot of trouble because they constantly wanted to overthrow the Romans with might and power and violence. Uh, scholars believe that Judas's last name, Iscariot, can be translated dagger, which is what the zealots would walk around with. They'd walk around with daggers, killing Roman soldiers and causing chaos. So many believe that Judas came from among the zealots, but we, we know this for sure, that, that Judas was a scholar. Judas spent a significant amount of time among the Sanhedrin, among the chief priests, among the elite uh, of Old Testament Judaism. So he certainly had the acumen of being someone who could hang with those type of people. So we believe that Judas had strong political interests and strong theological interests. He was an intellect. He was a scholar. He was probably the most educated among the disciples. And what did Judas do? Well, he was, of course, traveling with with Jesus and the 12 disciples, the other 11 disciples, during his three-year earthly ministry. And Judas was in charge of the money bag, all right? Again, very intellectual, very scholarly, in charge of looking after the money and making the purchases that needed to be made. And of course, we know there is one purchase that he decided to make. We know there was a time that he snuck off to go meet with the chief priests in the temple, and they made an agreement. And the agreement was that if Judas would lead the chief priests to the location of Jesus that Judas would receive 30 pieces of silver. And this great betrayal began to be planned. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What was the intention of Judas? 
Why was he willing to make an agreement with the chief priests? I really don't think it was about the money. At the end of the life of Judas, we see that. And I don't think Judas wanted to put Jesus on the cross. Judas was not trying to get Jesus killed. Again, when Judas figured out that's what was going to happen to Jesus, it led to his suicide. So what was Judas trying to accomplish by handing Jesus over? Well, let's put this together. If he came from the zealots and he was also a scholar, here's what I believe Judas wanted to happen. I believe that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand to reveal his identity to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and in by doing so, that he would lead a political movement, that the Sanhedrin would anoint him king of the Jews, and by force, they would overtake Rome and usher in a new kingdom. I believe that's what Judas thought was going to happen. Here's the problem with that. For three years, Jesus, Jesus told Judas and the other disciples, that's not the kingdom I'm building. And he also looked at them right in their eyes and said, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and they will mock me, flog me, and crucify me. And Judas thought he knew better than Jesus. So regardless of what his intentions were, we do not need to stand here and have empathy for Jesus because he heard, or from Judas, because he heard from the lips of Jesus what was going to happen, and he thought he knew better than Christ himself. That's Judas Iscariot, most likely a zealot, certainly a scholar, incredibly dishonest, incredibly arrogant, and making the worst decision in human history, betraying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as he is seated at the table and this bread of betrayal is being served, I want to look at three ways this bread of betrayal is served in this scene in the upper room. And here's the first. Number one, I want to look at how the bread of betrayal is predicted. How the bread of betrayal is predicted. As you look at verses 18 through 22, Jesus makes a very strong statement starting in verse 18. And he says, I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And as soon as you read that statement, you encounter the greatest tension in the entire Bible. And I want to tell you this. This is a tension that I am not going to resolve today. It is a tension that scholars for 2,000 years have been trying to resolve. It is a tension that even in Candler County, people can't resolve. And that's the reason why on one side of the street, there's a primitive Baptist church. And on the other side of the street, there's a free will Baptist church. And then you have a Southern Baptist church here where everybody's welcome at the table to have their own opinions. And the tension that I'm talking about is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are like these railroad tracks that go parallel to one another throughout the entire Bible. And in some passages, it looks like everything's leaning on the sovereignty of God. And then in the next sentence, it looks like everything's leaning on the responsibility of man. And I will tell you this right now. Those two things work together in ways that transcend your understanding. Do not try to reconcile it. Rest in it because the truth is in the tension. The truth is in the tension. What happens when people try to get a clear, precise answer and put a period to where God has left a question mark is you, you, you put your flag in one camp and you completely twist other scripture to fit what you believe. 
I wanna tell you, I don't know how these things work together. I just know they're both very clear in the scriptures. God is in control and we're responsible. All right, so let me just make a summary statement. Let me say again, first, God is in control, man is not. Okay, God is in control of every moment of human history. I remember years ago reading the great Charles Spurgeon who said, there's not even a dust mite that floats to the ground that God is not in control of, that God does not either initiate or permit to float in the air. God is in control of everything and man is not. But number two, mankind is the author of evil and God is not. Mankind is the author of evil and God is not. There is no evil in God. There is no darkness in God. God cannot sin and violate his own nature. So God is perfect and holy and good in every way. So any evil in the world, though God is in control, it is man who is the author of it and who's responsible for it. And again, God is sovereign. Third, God is sovereign, but mankind's responsible. How how do you work this out? Well, scholars say, and I agree, you need to understand it this way. God has an active and a permissive will. God has an active and a permissive will. There are things that God initiates, and then there are things that God permits. Things that God himself, again, evil is something that he does not initiate. He does not tempt people towards evil. He's not the creator of evil, but he will permit evil because evil is how he works together the greatest good. And that's the last thing I wanna say. God permits the greatest evil to produce the greatest good. If you don't believe me, look at that cross. The greatest evil that ever took place led to the greatest good that ever took place. And God permitted it. But God's not the author of evil because he is good. You say, Bo, this is enough to make my head explode. Let me just say this. It's okay to not understand the mysteries of God. But you must understand that God is in control and that you are responsible as a human being. That's what you need to understand. So as we look at the life of Judas, that's what we have to see. When Jesus says these words, when he says, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled, we have to believe that God is sovereignly in control, that Jesus knew what he was doing when he chose the 12. He knew that one was gonna betray him, that this was gonna be the fulfillment of prophecy, and that Judas at the same time is absolutely responsible for all the sin he commits against Jesus. He's absolutely responsible. And Jesus actually quotes uh, an Old Testament psalm, and it it also matches perfectly with a a verse in the book of Genesis. In Psalm 41.9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. What does that mean that someone lifts his heel against you? Well, for those of you that are horse lovers, imagine trying to take a horseshoe off and that horse has had a bad afternoon. And that heel gets lifted against you. You get kicked and knocked on your fanny. That's what it's talking about. Your heel getting lifted against you is getting kicked when you're down. And actually, when you think about this idea of the heel, it's an echo of the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first time in the Bible that there's a prophecy that a Messiah is going to come, it says that a seed from the woman will come and crush the head of Satan, the serpent, but Satan will bruise his heel. 
So all this is prophecy that's taking place. Jesus knows what is going to happen. He is saying, I know whom I have chosen. I know the scriptures will be fulfilled. I know what Judas is going to do. And yet, look what happens in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. You need to know this about Jesus Christ. He is an eternal, present tense God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And let me tell you what that means. Even if Jesus Christ knows the beginning, the middle, and the end all at one time, he is uniquely with you in every moment of life. And you need to stop and rest in that. That's the best of both worlds. On the one hand, you have a God that's in control. Jesus is not surprised by what you're going through, whatever you're going through. But at the same time, even though he already knows how he's gonna work it together for good, he still stops and enters into every moment with you. And the perfect example I give in addition to this passage is back in John chapter 11. If you've never read John 11, that's the story of when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, when he was with Mary and Martha and he saw how troubled they were in their spirit, it troubled his spirit. It troubled his spirit. In fact, the shortest verse in the New Testament are those two words, Jesus wept. He wept because he entered into that moment with the ones he loved, even though he knew in just a few moments he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and there would be a celebration and the tears would be wiped away. He could have beelined it past their pain. He could have gotten right to the moment of rising or raising Lazarus from the dead and everything would have been done with. But Jesus enters into every moment with us. And even though Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, he was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit because he is an eternal present tense God. He is fully with you right now in this moment. And again, he's in control. He already knows how it's going to play out. He works all things together for good, but he weeps with those who weep. And he's troubled in times of darkness. That's number one. The bread of betrayal is predicted. Number two, let's look at how the bread of betrayal is presented as we look at verses 23 through 26. Now, don't move past this. I want to see why this is a perfect visual of this entire sermon series. Remember I said we, we need to pretend that we're in the seat of John resting our head against the bosom of Jesus. Where do I get that? I get it from this passage. In verse 23, it says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And it says again in verse 25 that the disciple leaned back against Jesus. This is a portrait of intimacy. Right? This is a portrait of great intimacy. And this intimacy that John has with Jesus in this scene is why John, inspired of the Holy Spirit, can help us to enter into the heart of Jesus in this scene. And during this scene, we see that Jesus presents the morsel of bread as a confirmation of who will betray him. It is an absolute confirmation of who will betray him. Now, let me be clear. Jesus Christ is not tempting Judas to sin. When he dips the bread and he hands it to Judas, he's not tempting him to sin. You need to understand that about Jesus. He is simply affirming who has already chosen to sin against him. 
And Jesus already knew what was in the heart of Judas Iscariot. He already knew it. How do I know that? John tells us all the way back in John chapter 2, verse 25 about Jesus. He says, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I want you to stop for a second. I know we said this last week. Jesus is 100% God and Jesus is 100% man. And you may say, well, of course, Jesus knows what is in man's heart because he's God. But I want to focus on the humanity of Jesus for a second. I think it is in his humanity that he understands what's in man. Because Jesus is the perfect human being. He is fully in line with the will of God. He walks in step with the Spirit of God. And he knows the Word of God. And I believe that if we walk with God the way Jesus does, we'll know the heart of man the way Jesus did. He knew what was in the heart of Judas. Even as as Judas joined the 12, he already knew who he was and what he was going to do. And I believe that's because Jesus was so receptive to the will of God. He was so surrendered to the Father. He was so sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit. He knew what was in man. He knew what was in the heart of Judas. And he knew what Judas was going to do when he presented that bread to him. That's the bread of betrayal being presented. But let's move third and finally now to the bread of betrayal that is partaken. Let's look at how the bread of betrayal is partaken. In verses 27 through 30, this is a troubling sentence in verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. That is a terrifying statement. Now I want to say something real quickly. Satan only did what Jesus allowed him to do. All right, Satan is is a roaring lion seeking to, to go after who it is that he can devour, but he stands waiting for his marching orders. He can do nothing without the permission of Jesus. So a type of passage like this ought to sober us to understand how real spiritual warfare is. But we should never get to the point that we forget that when we stand close to Jesus and we cling to light, darkness has no rule over us. No rule over us whatsoever. Why is it that Satan had access to Judas? Because Judas turned his back on Jesus. And by the way, Judas did that well before the upper room. Again, let's look at at these jigsaw puzzle pieces that put together the whole story of Judas. All the way back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus had said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew this well before the upper room, what was in the heart of Judas. And there's an actual scene that John tells us a little bit further in John 12 about who Judas is and how he responded to the earthly ministry of Jesus. If you don't know the story, I'll just read uh, three verses, John 12, four through six. This is a scene where Mary and Martha, again, are with Jesus, and Mary anoints him, and Judas has something to say about it. In John 12, four through six, it says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So before Satan entered into him in the upper room, Jesus was al- or Judas was already betraying Jesus over and over again. And Satan had already been at work himself. How do I know that? I'll give you one more verse. In Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 4, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. So you have these things happening. Throughout the life of Judas, he consistently is betraying Jesus and Satan is continually doing work in the heart of Judas, yet at the same time, Satan is not doing anything that God is not allowing. God is allowing this to happen. Now, why does God allow that to happen? Well, you know, there's a passage in the Old Testament that really helped me with this years ago. In the book of Exodus, If you guys remember Old Testament history, in the book of Exodus, do you remember all the plagues when Moses went to Pharaoh and kept saying to Pharaoh to let his people go? And there's these interesting verses that keep coming back and forth. On some of those passages in Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then in other passages, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so the question is, What's God doing there? And and the best way that I can say it is this. There's other passages in the New Testament that teach us one thing. God hands people over to what they really want. Romans 1 talks about that perfectly. So God hardens the hearts of those who are hardened against him. And God hands people over to Satan who are already turning their back on him. All right, Judas is not innocent. He's not walking in righteousness and then God sovereignly chooses to let Satan overtake him to fulfill scripture. No, Judas is guilty. And he's guilty before Satan enters him. He's guilty when Satan enters him. And he's guilty after Satan leaves and he realizes what he's done. And later in the Bible, he hangs himself in his guilt. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. God hands people over to what it is that they really want. And if you don't want God... There's only one alternative. And that's what God is doing with Judas. And it's terrifying to think about. So what happens? Well, he partakes of this bread. Jesus dips it, hands it over. Judas eats it. And then Judas rises and Judas leaves. And it says in verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night now those last words are visible darkness and spiritual darkness and the entire atmosphere changes in the upper room after this moment now for Judas it's the beginning of the end all right for Judas he's going to find out real quick that Satan played him like a puppet and he's going to realize there's no turning back he has betrayed Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But let me tell you what happens with the disciples. And this sets the table for the rest of the, up, uh, the upper room that we'll look at in weeks to come, Lord willing. All right, for the disciples, now the one who betrays Jesus is gone. And the faithful 11 are the only ones who are left with Jesus. And for the rest of the upper room discourse in the end of John 13 to John 17, now Jesus can speak to these faithful disciples, not perfect, but faithful, And he can share his heart in a brand new way. And that's what he's going to do. And that's what we're going to walk through together in weeks to come.
But how do we sum this up? How do we find our place in the story here? How does this apply to us in 2022? Perhaps some of you feel empathy for Judas and you shouldn't. Perhaps some of you want to condemn Judas the way God already has. But let's not forget one word. And that word is grace. Let me sum this up in one sentence and let me just say how this applies to us as we continue in the upper room together. In one sentence, we have all eaten the bread of betrayal against Jesus, but will you receive the same grace that Judas refused? We have all eaten the bread of betrayal against Jesus, but will you receive the same grace that Judas refused? The, different, the, the question is not, have we betrayed Jesus? No, maybe we didn't hand Jesus over to people who would put him on the cross, but you've betrayed Jesus, I've betrayed Jesus, and we've done it this week. I guarantee we have. We claim to be Christian. We claim to be part of the body of Christ. We claim his name. We claim his lordship. And then we live our lives as if we are the Lord of our own life. And every time we do, we betray him. Every single time. All of us. And yet, we're offered this grace. You know, I, I don't know what would have happened to Judas had he not committed suicide. And I don't want to pretend to understand how that story would have unfolded. But what I do know is this. Jesus came in grace. Jesus already knew what is in our hearts. And Jesus offers us amazing grace for our sin. Judas did not understand that grace. First of all, and get it back in John 12 as, as Mary is using this very expensive ointment to anoint Jesus and all he can think about is dollars and cents. All he can think about is his selfishness. He wanted to refuse that grace even then and he refused it for himself in the very end. But yet that grace is offered to us. So I wanna say again is, it's not a question if you betrayed Jesus, you have. The question is, do you understand your need for his grace and will you receive it? Do you understand that without his grace, your destiny is the same as Judas? God will not stand in the presence of sin in his kingdom. He simply will not. But at the same time, do you know that as much as you need that grace, his grace is sufficient for every time you've betrayed him. If you are willing to confess with your mouth if you are willing to turn away from sin in repentance, and if you are, are willing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you can experience that grace. If you're a Christian, praise God. You still need his grace today as much as the day you got saved. And if you're not a Christian, you're headed the same path of Judas. You've eaten the same bread he's eaten. I guarantee you have. It's part of your nature but the last chapter in your story doesn't have to be the bread of betrayal. It can be the story of amazing grace. So what I wanna say is, where you are right now as we enter into a time of prayer, acknowledge who you are before God. Acknowledge the bread of betrayal that you've eaten in recent days, maybe even today. Thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes that have not honored Jesus. And come back to the table of grace and put down the bread of betrayal and know that our sin is great, but his grace is greater. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray right now that as we consider the life of Judas Iscariot, Lord, that we would see ourselves as those who have partaken of the same bread that he's eaten. No, we've not handed Jesus over to the chief priests, but we've claimed his name and then lived as counterfeits. We're made in your image, and yet we misrepresent your image every day. We receive grace upon grace, and then we refuse to offer it to other people. So, Lord, I just pray right now again that as we see Judas, we see ourselves, but yet we would make a choice in the end that Judas did not. I pray that we would receive grace. I pray that we would confess our sins, that we would repent and turn away from those sins, and that we would turn back to Jesus and let him be the Lord and Savior of our life and the King who sits on the throne of our hearts. And all of this that we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.